The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In today's business world, you need to have a unique edge in order to thrive. Your show host, Lisa Chickles, understands you have to live it to get it. And she is here to give what they couldn't teach you in business school. This is Chat with Chickles, featuring brand champion Lisa Chickles. In this program, you'll hear from the experts who are already making differences in their business while picking up strategies that can help you and your business survive and thrive. Now, here's your host, Lisa Chickles. Welcome. It's so nice to have you here today, and I am broadcasting live from Toronto, Canada. And thank you for taking the time to join me for my show on organizational behavior and design and why it should matter to us as leaders. This is being taught in business school today, um, as I'm sure our guest can attest to. Um, And today I wanted to take a more practical approach. How can we apply it in our organizations today? How can we use organizational design and behavior as a tool to help us implement the strategies that we as leaders um, are developing in our organizations? In past episodes, I've chatted about innovation and how culture can be a barrier or an enabler to success. I've talked about leadership and leading through influence instead of authority building high-performing teams, and the importance of both planning and leading implementation. Last week, we talked about understanding our innate strengths as leaders and using a development plan to ensure that we lead with the whole brain, not just the part of the brain that's most developed. Today, I want to talk about the power of organizational behavior and design and its ability to unlock the potential of organizations so we as leaders can lead. We have many tools in our toolbox that we can tap into that help us and aid us in delivering our vision and our strategy as leaders. And sometimes we forget about the role that organizational behavior and design can play. Sometimes our um, organizational structure is predetermined through maybe our global counterparts. But there are still things we can do within our in our own organization to fine-tune it to make sure that it is actually um, helping to unlock any potential barriers to implementation, barriers to delivering our vision, and that it's actually driving the right behaviors in our organization. I've heard from many people um, who say, you know, I have this great strategy and I don't understand why they just can't get it done. Why isn't it happening? Um, well, a lot of that can have to do with um, how you're organization is designed and then the behaviors that that design is actually um, encouraging. So when I was working at the Heart and Stroke Foundation, I worked with a consultant who was an expert in this area. His engineering background really brought a very practical approach on how to apply these theories to my own situation. His principles of the performance gap and compression, defining accountabilities versus responsibilities, and understanding the stratum or the strategic level of understanding or complexity of not of your organization, you as a leader, and your team, and in some cases, your bosses. Um, and these key insights really helped me to deliver innovation within my organization. 
I've asked him here today because I think we can all benefit from his expertise and insights. And these tools can help to unlock some of the performance roadblocks um, that we may be experiencing in our own organization. My guest today is Morley Katz. Morley is Managing Direct- Director of Management Matters, a consulting practice focused on helping CEOs and senior executives solve tough leadership and organizational challenges. He combines a rigorous body of knowledge and a highly skilled and practical approach to organizational design, effectiveness, and executive leadership. Since founding his company in 1997, Morley has consulted to more than 60 organizations and over a 1,000 senior executives in a variety of industries, including financial services, telecommunications, retail, and also government organizations and uh, major foundations in the not-for-profit sector. He's worked across Canada and the U.S. and in Europe and Asia. In addition to extensive experience as a management consultant, he's also been a corporate executive and power systems engineer. Um, So he knows what it's like to work in an organization um, and why these theories are so important. Morley holds multiple degrees, um, I don't know how he finds the time, in management sciences, operations research, and organizational behavior from the University of Waterloo, electrical engineering from Queen's University, and mathematics and philosophy from the University of Toronto. He's a licensed professional engineer in the province of Ontario. He's also a past board chair of the North York Harvest Food Bank and a past vice chair of the Toronto Children's Chorus. He's currently pursuing his PhD part-time, and as I said, I don't know how he finds the time, in Management Sciences, Faculty of Engineering, University of Waterloo, specializing in executive leadership. So, Morley, thank you so much for finding the time, clearly, uh, to join us today. My pleasure, Lisa. (laughs) So, Morley, just to help start us off here, can you just give us kind of a broad overview of what you mean by organizational design and behavior? Sure. Um, When I look at a a corporate structure or any organization, I actually look at three components, uh, environment, strategy, and organization. So the first thing, environment, what's the environment you're operating in, the business environment, political environment, regulatory, and so on, and what are your uh, opportunities and threats in that environment. The second piece is the, the strategy, so um, what's your, how do you respond to that environment, as well as hopefully how do you shape uh, the environment to, that you want to operate in. So that gets to your value proposition and your value chain and so on. And the third component is how do you organize in order to be able to execute the strategy. Uh, so and there are a number of components to organization. That's uh, structure, uh, how, how, do, how do you structure the organization, behaviors, how do, how do people need to work together within the structure, uh, what are the routines and processes that are need, needed in the organization, managerial uh, processes, cross-functional processes, and so on. And the fourth component, last but not least, is the people and the talents in the organization. So those four components. So uh, organizational design and behavior focuses in, on those four organizational components, and I particularly are going to talk today mostly about the structure and the behavioral aspects. And the other thing I would say about this is uh, just like people are used to rigor in the technical work that they do, whether there's finance or engineering, whatever it is they're focusing on, there's also a rigorous body of knowledge when it comes to organizational dynamics, so how we should structure ourselves and work together in structures, although often that's not really understood by people. It's sort of what we assume we uh, uh, get by 
experience in the seat of our pants, which I would say certainly is necessary. Experience is really critical in understanding organizations, but I would say it's necessary but not sufficient that we need to bring to bear um, science and rigor where we can. So, so are there different theories and approaches um, that one might take in terms of organizational behavior and design? There are, um, although, as I say, I think there is a science to it, so I think a lot of, a lot of work is often somewhat misdirected. So the, the, uh, maybe one of the most critical things I'll, I'll point out is, is a difference in the way I do it as compared to uh, what many others do, which is a lot of focus is on the people or the talent in the organization, which is obviously really important. You need to find the right people and put them in the right roles and so on. But that's one piece of the the, the issue. Uh, and another critical point is is the system design and taking a systems view of the organization. Because if you don't uh, look at a system and, and understand how to design an organizational system properly, you can put well-intentioned, highly capable people uh, into a dysfunctional system. And guess what's going to win? The system is going to win. Yeah, the, the system's going to win. And so as, as, mu- as much as we focus on individuals and talent, uh, which are obviously critically important, my starting point is the system, because if I walk in and, and sometimes we can tell people aren't working well and aren't working out and aren't, aren't performing, but very often it, it, you can't really tell that, that you can't tell whether the problem is that the system is driving dysfunctional behavior or whether it's the individual. So if you focus on the system and are able to fix the system, then um, that touches everybody, and any residual dysfunction, you know, is related to the individuals. But at the beginning, it's it's often difficult to tell whether it's the system or the individual. Well, I, I've certainly worked in organizations where there have been specific roles that I felt we just kept hiring person after person after person, and then you start to think, well, were, were they all bad hiring decisions, or is there something else going on? Is is that what you're referring to when you talk about the system versus the person? Yeah, there's. Um, so I can give you some classic examples of, of that. There, there. Um uh, there was one one client I had uh, where that sort of thing was actually happening, and I actually didn't know about it. I did the org- I did an organizational assessment, and because if you look at the if you have a, a you know a rigorous way of looking at this stuff, uh, things start popping out. So, for example, there were two senior vice president positions in this particular organization that I was looking at, and I realized that there really wasn't a role there for each of those SVPs. That that uh, there wasn't a lot of value they could bring to the table. And, but one, one fellow was flourishing because he actually was working on a project that nobody else wanted to work on, so that was helping. Uh, and so he, he was going to be successful as long as that project was going on. But the other, the other individual was in a role, as I say, which, which really didn't make any sense to me. And when I brought this to the attention of the client, uh, the first question was, well, how would you possibly know that? And as I say, when you, when you approach this in a rigorous way, things start to show up. And, and sure enough, what was happening in the case of the second individual is they were about to fire him. And, uh, and over and above that, something else I found out is they had gone through three or four senior vice presidents mm-hmm. in that role up to that point. And that really begs the question, certainly if you one or two, you'd say, all right, you might, you might get one or two poor fits. But the likelihood of getting four or five fits at a senior level, poor, poor fits, uh, diminishes. Uh, and it was because the structure was problematic, not because the individual was problematic. So, so as a leader, when we start to see that happen, like uh, that we're starting to see people turn over in a particular role, maybe we need to take a moment and think about 
the system. So, so is that a time when, like, what are the times when I should start to look at things like structure? Because as a leader, I can get very caught up in the development of my five-year strategic plan or my vision and, you know, not really paying attention to how, how that's now going, how that work is now going to flow into the organization. Right. Well, certainly, you know, cases where you're having this turnover in particular roles and it, and, and, it, and it doesn't seem to be making sense is one trigger point, but there are a number of other trigger points uh, if there's going to be a shift in strategy in the organization. Um, so structure follows strategy, form follows function. Uh, so when you're trying to figure out structurally, one of, one of the things you're, you're looking at uh, when you're looking at structure is uh, strategically what are you trying to do and then structurally how should you design the organization. So a shift in strategy would certainly uh, trigger questions around does the structure uh, reinforce what we're trying to do strategically. Is there interpersonal friction in the organization? And again, it could be the individuals, but it could actually be the system that the individuals are operating in? Are there bottlenecks in decision-making? Uh, so often I hear, you know, at senior levels that everything is, is, is bubbling up for decisions at, at senior levels in the organization and work can't get done. So bottlenecks in decision-making gets to how is the system designed and, and, and operating? Are people doing end runs around their managers or around their colleagues? Are you finding staff or, or managers are overloaded? Are you finding that commitments aren't being met in the organization? There are all sorts of symptoms that are often attributed, again, to the individual as opposed to, well, maybe it's the individual, but actually maybe it's not the individual. Maybe it's the system. I'll give you a, a, a problem like that writ large that, that people would certainly be familiar with, which is... Uh, if you look at the um, President Obama and the American government at this point, whether you like President Obama or not, in, in, as, as an, uh, you know, as a president, it's hard to argue that regardless of who's in that role and how good or they may be in that role, the system itself constrains the ability of the individual to operate in the role. And the same thing is true in, in companies and other organizations. So then I think what you're saying there to sum up just before we go into the break is that as leaders, it's make sure that we're looking at both sides of it. Yes, the individual and the talent, but first and foremost, the structure. And, and are we setting those people up for success or our teams up for success? So when we come back after the break, uh, we're going to talk more about this. And I'm going to ask Morley to go into a little bit more detail on different types of structures. How do I as a leader sort out the best one for me in my organization? Are there a right number of levels, span of control, and things like that? So we'll be back in a bit. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Take your business to the next level. Deliver more growth to your bottom line and bring innovation to your organization. Visit LisaChicklesConsulting.com. Lisa Chickles Consulting will work with you to unearth your brand's potential to drive business results. Lisa works with the top brands in the corporate and not-for-profit sectors to develop strategic plans to ensure success. Bring a fresh and original perspective to your business. Visit LisaChicklesConsulting.com. That's LisaChicklesConsulting.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? 
Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into Chat with Chickles. To reach Lisa and her guest today, please call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send Lisa an email to chatwithchickles at rogers.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back and we are chatting with Morley Katz, Managing Director of Management Matters, and why organizational design and behavior should matter to us as leaders. Morley, before the break, you were sharing with us the overall concept of organizational design and behavior and the great scientific rigor that's behind it and how that can assist us as leaders. I'm wondering if we can um, go a little bit further and tap into you know, different specific structures, um, you know, are there different types? Is one better than the other? And then, of course, as a leader, how, how do I decide what's right for my organization? Sure. Um, well, first, maybe we can just talk about structure. And actually, just to reemphasize okay. something that you um, mentioned before the break, um, when, when we look at environment strategy and organization, often what happens is, is um, certainly CEOs and other leaders focus on the strategy component mm-hmm. of it. And really one of the things to, you know, we, we want to f- emphasize here is they're accountable not only for strategy, but also for designing and tweaking the system that enables them to execute the strategy, which is why this is so important. Um, so when I talk about structure, um, you know, organizations really are about division of labor. The reason we have organizations of the first, in the first place is because we need more than one pre- person to do something. If you could do it by yourself, it's often better to do it by yourself. It's more efficient to get things done that way. (laughs) So the reason we have organizations is because we need two or more people to do something that one person can't do by themselves. And also, in addition to the volume and and the need for dividing labor that way, it's also specialization. We need to divide and specialize because, uh, um, you know, like Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations at the beginning of the book of the pin factory, that it was much more efficient to specialize in people manufacturing pins. They produced a lot more pins in a day than having uh, a bunch of individuals doing the same thing. So the specialization is critical as well. So division of labor structure is both lateral and vertical. So we often think about the lateral division of labor uh, when we're thinking about structure, which is should we be organized by function or geography or market or product or process or some variation on that. And really, that's, that's critical, and that comes out of the strategy. Strategically, what are we trying to do? And then structurally, it would be better to have a functional structure or a geographic structure in order to execute on that. But the other division of labor is the vertical division. So how many levels should there be in the organization? What should be the differentiation of work at various levels? How do we ensure that there's added value at each level? And that aspect of structure often gets short shrift, uh, that it's not really focused on um, very much. And that is really critical. That's, That's one of the Often the lateral structure, you can make any one of those work usually, um, but the vertical structure is where uh, the problems generally start to arise. So so what kind of problems would I experience, 
you know, as a leader, if maybe I, I hadn't thought through that vertical? So, um, in in the there, there's a reason that we have these vertical structures, and the reason that we have hierarchies. That that there there are you know increasing levels of complexity of work that people have to do and increasing capability that needs to be brought to bear to do those increasing levels of complexity of work. So, for example, you know, is, is there a difference between what a CEO does and what somebody at the front line does? Certainly right. people would say, yes, there is. And there's not just a quantitative difference. There's a qualitative difference between what they do. Now, what the CEO does and what the frontline person does, they're both extremely important and critical to the organization, but there's a difference in the kind of work uh, that they do. And the research shows that there are actually discrete jumps in complexity uh, from level to level in organizations, uh, which seems to be a re- related to uh, what's known as the time span of the longest task that the individual does. So at the front line, if you're a, a, a teller, you know, the, the time span over which you operate is maybe over a day or two, whereas the, you know, the CEO of the bank is looking out over a much longer time horizon. So the bottom line, though, is that there are these, these discrete jumps in complexity in the organization, and if we don't get those number, the number of levels right, we end up with, we end up with um, problems. We end up with um, what are known as gaps or compression in the structure. And and I know that you helped me with this when I was at Heart and Stroke, and there were times when I thought, geez, Morley, I'm, I'm really tired. What's going on? And I know that you had shared with me, well, Lisa, you've got a bit of a gap here. And I think that was around complexity, um, maybe not having the right level of person leading a specific task or department or area of work. That's right. So, so there, there is a way of looking at what's the right number of levels in the organization. So I'll, this notion of gaps and compression. So a gap means you've actually got too few levels in the organization, and compression means that you've got too many levels in the organization. So in the case of, of a gap, which is what you're experiencing, there's a level of complexity of work in the organization, but we actually don't have any bodies in there doing that level of complexity of work. And consequently, one of two things is going to happen. Either people at lower levels are going to be pulled up to try to do that work, but they're not going to be able to do it, not because they don't want to, and it's not because of volume. It's actually because of complexity. The work is actually beyond their capability to do. So therefore, what's going to happen instead is the senior people are going to get pulled down to do that work because that's the only way the work is going to get done. So now you've got senior people, uh, you know, at, at whatever level, getting pulled down to do that work as well as having to do the work at their own level. So that's a... a, a symptom of a gap that you're over you're overloaded uh, because you're doing your work as well as doing work at levels of complexity below you where you actually need people to be doing that work compression is the reverse of that where we've got too many levels in the organization where somebody is in a reporting relationship to a manager and the manager is actually too close to them in the mm-hmm. sense that the manager isn't adding any value because they're not operating at a different level of complexity of thinking. And consequently, a symptom of that is that the direct report is going to start doing end runs around their manager to higher levels because when they run into a real problem, the person who's able to provide context and help them think through the problem is not the person they're reporting to who's really operating at the same level they are. It's the, somebody higher up in the organization. Well, it's interesting because I had that also that exact same problem on my team. And to your point about it, it created dysfunction in terms of the relationship between these two people. I mean, they were both very capable, but clearly they were at a similar level of a strategic ability, um, you know, ability of complexity. And but they were reporting to one another 
and and it didn't work. And exactly what you said happened is everyone kept coming to me. And then that was just creating even more stress on the relationship. So clearly it wasn't necessarily the people, but the structure. Well, that's exactly right. And often in, in big organizations, what happens is the people who do end runs, what happens is, is they're looked at negatively and they're sent mm-hmm. off to interpersonal skills training courses and <laughs> exactly. let's, let's fix them. It's and then true. they come back into the organization and guess what they do? They keep on doing end runs. And then what do we do? We fire them. And, and, right. uh, and it's not because of them. It's because we've actually put them into a system that is driving dysfunctional behavior. It's a classic example of a system problem as opposed to an individual problem. Well, I think the good news in our case is we were actually able to um, to have them uh, not report to each other, but work more laterally and have both report to me, which seemed to like completely unlock the relationship problem, but also increase that team's um, capacity for work. Right. And, and if it shows that if you design the system properly, what you're able to do is unleash the capability and potential of right. people as opposed to constrain their ability and, and potential, which is what poor system design does. Right. And then so, so building on your idea of like there's a right number of levels and, you know, the compression and the gaps, you'd also talked about, you also helped me with this concept of accountability um, and authority. And maybe you can chat a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, so corporate structures are, are what are known as a managerial accountability hierarchy. So, so we, we live in hierarchies because of, of this notion that there are increasing levels of complexity of work and so on, and that everybody in, in an organization is held to account by someone for their effectiveness and their output. So starting at the, from the board level, the board is held to account in a public company by the shareholders. The board in turn holds the CEO to account uh, for his or her performance and the output of the organization. The CEO in turn holds uh, direct reports to account and that cascades through the, through the whole organization. So this notion of accountability, which is about the relationship between individuals in the organization and, and critically the, the linchpin relationship is manager-direct report relationship, everybody in an organization is held to account by someone for their their manager for their effectiveness and output, as opposed to the notion of responsibility. Responsibility is about the relationship between the individual and the task, as opposed to accountability about the relationship mm-hmm. between the individuals. And I can feel responsible for all sorts of things, um, but what really matters is when I'm in an organization is what am I being held to account for by my manager? And that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's my manager who's supposed to be setting context and assigning work and doing assessments and so on. So that accountability relationship is really critical. Well, and, and I found just um, in both working inside organizations and as a consultant is those accountabilities are often not clear, right? And, and I find some of it is you know, um, the more specific you are and the more clear you are, some people hesitate with that because there's a fear that, well, if it's super clear what I'm accountable for, then what if I can't do it or I fail? Have you had any of those experiences in your consulting practice? Yeah, you know, some people, that's true. Some people like it to be vague, but the problem with the vagueness is that mm-hmm. it's um, you're not getting the work done. I mean, the organization exists to divide labor and for people to get work done. And it, this isn't meant to constrain the ability to, you know, for people to be free to actually execute on those accountabilities the way they see fit. But it's got to be clear, what am I actually accountable for and where do I have the authority to make decisions and not, which is a, a larger discussion. 
So, so we're just about to come up on a break. So if I hear what you're saying, and, and I, this is like a big question. Um, so if I get this all right, am I more likely to be successful in delivering my vision and my strategy as a leader? For sure. Uh, the, the, uh, it enables you to actually marshal as a manager and as a leader, it enables you to uh, partition the work and marshal the resources that you need in order to accomplish what you're setting out to do, whereas if people are not clear about that uh, division of work and their accountabilities and decision rights, then they are going to be crashing into each other and, and all sorts of friction and dysfunction will be created, not because they're ill-intentioned, but just mm-hmm. because they're making assumptions, their colleagues are making different assumptions, the likelihood of making everybody making the same assumptions around uh, who's accountable for what and who has the right to make decisions and so on uh, is, is very low. People are not just going to make those assumptions um, correctly or uh, accurately from the perspective of the leader without actually having clear conversations about them. Well, Morley, these principles are are so helpful. I know they helped me tremendously um, in the organization that I was working in, you know, in understanding wow, some of my challenges, I just kept thinking I had to work more hours or harder. Um, and then I realized that there was actually some structural um, challenges which was which were getting in the way. So when we come back, I'd love to chat more about these principles, um, um, the span of control and also the different cross-functional relationships within organizations, you know, and how people can tend to gravitate towards more of a silo approach because it seems a bit clearer, but that, of course, we do have to work cross-functionally to be effective. So um, we'll be back with Morley. Um, in a few minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Take your business to the next level. Deliver more growth to your bottom line and bring innovation to your organization. Visit LisaChicklesConsulting.com. Lisa Chickles Consulting will work with you to unearth your brand's potential to drive business results. Lisa works with the top brands in the corporate and not-for-profit sectors to develop strategic plans to ensure success. Bring a fresh and original perspective to your business. Visit LisaChicklesConsulting.com. That's LisaChicklesConsulting.com. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into Chat with Chickles. To reach Lisa and her guest today, please call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send Lisa an email to chat with chickles at rogers.com now back to this week's show 
We're back and we are chatting with Morley Katz, an expert in organizational behavior and design, and how leaders can leverage these principles to improve their success in business. Morley, this has been so insightful and a little bit of a walk down memory lane for me um, and understanding the power of organizational design. And I'd love to chat more about how all of that links, how all of that, like getting the right design and structure links to behavior. Um, and how we can leverage that as a leader in terms of actually almost helping us to deliver the outcomes that we're looking for. Your clarity around accountability versus responsibility, as we talked about earlier, really helped uh, me as a leader. And can you share your insights on how sometimes when that clarity isn't clear, it can strain the relationship within the organization? Sure. Uh, so there, there are again this this notion of accountability is is really um, critical. Critical, and uh, I'll back up a bit and talk about uh, really two kinds of people in organizations. We've got managers and and individual contributors in organizations. So manager, whether you're a frontline manager or, or you're a CEO, you're a manager, or you're an individual contributor. So individual contributors do their own work, and managers, <coughs> excuse me, do their own work, but are also held to account. Uh, for the outputs of other people, so the people who report to them. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so managers are held to account for the outputs of other people as well as doing their own work. So there's an individual contributor component to a manager's work as well. Um, and in a manager-direct report relationship, um, there's one kind of authority. There's, there's what's known as prescriptive authority. So the manager has the authority to tell a direct report what to do, to tell them how to do it, to tell them to stop doing what they're doing. Obviously, how you execute that authority matters. Do you do it in, a, you know, in, a, in an authoritative way and through dialogue and conversation and constructively or, or more in a command and control way? So how you ex- exercise that authority really matters. But the bottom line is every manager has this positional prescriptive authority in their role. But when it comes to cross-functional work between colleagues in an organization, whether it's between managers or whether or between individual contributors, there are actually seven different kinds of authorities that, that can show up. And I, I won't go into all of those in detail, but I'll, I'll give a couple of examples that will show um, what can happen if we're not clear about them. So two types of cross-functional authorities are what are known as best advice and monitoring. So if, I, if you and I are colleagues, uh, we might have a relationship where um, uh, I have particular expertise in a domain and I'm accountable and authorized to provide you with my best advice with respect to that expertise. But then you listen to that and you have a choice as to whether or not to accept it. You have to listen to me because I'm there to provide that advice. But you make the decision whether or not to take the advice and incorporate that into the other things you're also thinking about. And if you take it Great, and if you don't take it, it's not hopefully because you don't respect my capability, but rather because you're trying to factor that advice into the 15 other things you've got on your plate. And it's my job then to back off and, and let you make that decision, and, and it, it's your decision. That's one kind of authority that can exist. But another one could be where <clears throat> what's the monitoring authority, and monitoring is where uh, you might have accountability for a policy in the organization, a financial policy, an IT policy, HR policy, or something. And it's your job, actually, to monitor other people in the organization to make sure they're actually conforming to that policy. And if they're not, to have a conversation with them. And they might say, oh, I didn't realize that, and they fall in line. Or they might say, yeah, I know that, but I'm not going to do that. Well, you can't leave it at that because you're accountable for the integrity of that policy, and you can't just agree to disagree. At that point, either they 
follow the policy, and if they don't, and they may have a legitimate reason not to, it needs to be escalated to the next level for a decision. Uh, you can't just leave it because, in effect, then if, you, if it's left, you haven't done your job of, of, of um, making sure that people are following the policy. And you do that, what I call, transparently and fully formed to the manager. You don't go behind each other's backs. You, you, you see that you disagree. You have a robust conversation, and then you escalate it for a decision. So if you think about those two examples, best advice and monitoring, if um, if again, if you and I have this relationship, and suppose that um, you think my job is to provide you with best advice with respect to something and back off and let you make the decision, and I think my job is to monitor you and make sure that you're actually conforming to the policy, and if you don't escalate it, what's going to happen? Yeah, we're going to have we're going to have words. <laughs> we're going to have words. Yeah, we're going to we're going to be in, and there's going to be all sorts of friction, and not hope yeah. because we're ill-intentioned or, or bad people or something. It's because we've got different assumptions around what the work is and who has the authority to make the decision. So unless we're clear about that, we're going to cause all sorts of problems in the organization. Well, it, it's so helpful because you know, like you said early on in the show, we tend to focus on the people and oh they just don't get along or they can't seem to work together but it, i can see how if you take the time to sort this out it can be really helpful and and then it can t- you know minimize the, the the people part of it it's like well no actually morley this this is the type of authority that we have agreed to based on our bosses or managers and here's how we're working together um and then then it just makes it easier and then then you're just debating on you know um, the details of the work, but not the authority. Right. It's 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 not self-evident in a lot of cases who yeah. should have the authority to make the decision. And the other thing I would inject into this is that all work in organizations, and the more senior you get, is about judgment under uncertainty. It's not like there's an algorithm and, and mm-hmm. we can shoot out the uh, you know the answer. The fact is, the reason we have people in organizations is because. We need judgments under uncertainty. If we didn't need that, then we could automate everything, which is what we do over time. You know, we have automated teller machines and all sorts of stuff where, right. where we, we, we put into the machine what used to require human judgment. So the fact is, every, everything that we do in organizations is about judgment and discretion. So, um, uh, so once I provide best advice, um, then you make a judgment under uncertainty, and it's my job to back off and let you make that judgment and not second-guess you on it either because uh, we actually, neither of us knows what the outcome is going to be. We make our best judgments. The important thing is did we bring in to play all the information and uh, decision capability that we could to make the best decision we could at that point. Well, and I, I find, too, that your language that you provide is helpful. I mean, this is just a small example of I'm on a condo board, right? And uh, working with my property manager and the language of best advice really helped me um, because uh, when he would bring forward recommendations like, well, it's not my decision, you're the board. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm actually hiring you for best advice. And just using that language really helped me to uncover, you know, what the challenges were and also get the advice that I needed in order to make a decision. So maybe you don't know all of the um, different authorities, but just understanding what they are can help you when you're in those moments of choosing those great words that just help you clarify what some of the challenges might be in your working relationship. Right. And so, Morley, I also find 
You know, I've been in organizations where, let's say I'm leading a team that's actually an internal service provider to an organization. And and that can just feel like you're getting so many requests and and you don't really want to say no to people and it's hard to sort it out, but then of course, you know, if you're if you don't deliver, then it ends up becoming your problem. Um, what's what's your advice to people who are leading those kinds of teams within organizations? Yeah, so 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 uh, service uh, provision is actually one of those cross-functional relationships. So, so you, you can have a service receiver, service provider relationship, and the nature of that relationship is that the um, service provider is accountable and authorized to provide certain services within the organization, and service receivers are accountable and authorized to actually get those services from the service provider. And so what needs to be clear is, well, what are the services that are provided here by the service provision group, um, what, what are the kind of recurrent kind of services that they provide, to what level of quality, within what time frame, with what resources, and so on, so that, um, uh, so that when somebody comes and asks for those services, they know what they're getting and they know what the turnaround time is, and from the service provider's perspective, they know that uh, you know, they're not going to be asked for something and, and expected to turn it around in half an hour when that's the, you know, the kind of service they provide and there's a five-hour or two-day or whatever turnaround. Uh, so actually defining what the kinds of services are cross-functionally in an organization and, and developing what I'd call mini service level agreements. You don't need pages and pages, but having uh, you know a paragraph or two that describes what's the service that or what, what, you know what's the kind of service that we provide here, and as I say, time frame and uh, kind of quality we provide and all sorts of things really goes a long way to smoothing things because people know what they can ask for and others can know what they're actually supposed to be providing. There's a tendency that we all have because we're trying to help other people to accept all requests that are made of us, and in, in which case we're making commitments that we can't possibly fulfill. And it turns out, you know, the we have more than one arrow in our quiver when it comes to people making requests of us. We can accept a request, but we can also decline a request, or we can make a counteroffer, or we can do what's uh, known as commit to commit, which is to say, I don't know if I can do that, I'll get back to you. And if... if uh, if people are making requests of you as a service provider, but it's outside the purview of what's been agreed, then it's actually legitimate to decline that, and not just arbitrarily, but say, well, you know, maybe that's something we have to talk about, about providing a service. But, but just because the request is made doesn't mean that you should actually be providing that. It gums up the works, and it's not about being inflexible. It's actually about designing uh, the cross-functional relationships and service provision in a way that actually it works for everybody. Well, and well, and I've found in organizations we don't take the time to do those types of mini service uh, level agreements because, you know, we're busy and we think, oh my gosh, that's going to take a lot of time. But I think what you're saying is you should do them because look what happens on the back end. Yeah, in effect, I'd say you can't not do it because you end up with dysfunction and friction and broken promises and all sorts of stuff mm. because it's not clear what you know what the uh, service agreements are and and what I can get and what I I can't get from this group. So, so your your best advice to us would be before you're entering into those agreements and agreeing to provide a service, make sure you've sat down and thought through. You know, what is the service um, receiver and the provider? What are we giving and getting? And then what are some of the rules around that? Like, certainly in the advertising industry, we had very tight deadlines. And there had to be rules around when we received information from clients to be able to turn things around. And then I think to your point, though, once 
if the clients understood the rules, then they knew when they were asking for a favor, which then put us in a position of negotiation. Right, right, right. And it, again, it's not meant to be inflexible. It's actually, no. it greases the wheels as opposed to gumming them up. And even when you've got a service agreement, you've also, also got latitude to negotiate within that on a case-by-case basis. So the normal turnaround time is X, but if they need it more quickly, well, maybe you've got the capacity to give it to them more quickly, or right. what's known as the iron triangle, you know, time, quality, and resources. If you want something more quickly, well, then I either need more resources to do that or, or I can do that, but it's going to be reduced quality. So there's always opportunity for negotiation even within those service agreements, but at least having a framework within which you're operating and what's clear, uh, that, clear that you provide or don't is incredibly useful. Well, Morley, that's great. And we're coming up on a break. And when we come back, I think we have a couple of questions that we want to ask. And then, of course, we're going to ask you to summarize all of um, the great information that you've shared with us today. Back in a bit. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network take your business to the next level deliver more growth to your bottom line and bring innovation to your organization visit lisachicklesconsulting.com Lisa Chickles Consulting will work with you to unearth your brand's potential to drive business results. Lisa works with the top brands in the corporate and not-for-profit sectors to develop strategic plans to ensure success. Bring a fresh and original perspective to your business. Visit LisaChicklesConsulting.com. That's LisaChicklesConsulting.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into Chat with Chickles. To reach Lisa and her guest today, please call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send Lisa an email to chatwithchickles at rogers.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back and here with Morley Katz, uh, Managing Director of Management Matters, and why organizational design and behavior should matter to us as leaders. So it has been, um, as I said earlier, fascinating, a little bit of a walk down memory lane and remembering that as leaders, you know, we can spend a lot of our time thinking that our job is about, you know, developing the vision and the strategy for the organization. But equally important part of our job is how does, how do we now structure the organization so that work can happen? Um, so the implementation, but the structure, the design that we now understand leads to behaviors. Um, and if it isn't set up in the right way, can actually lead to some dysfunction. So just before we get into our summary, there was one um, comment that we wanted to chat about, and that was people talk a lot about span of control. And Morley, I'm just going to ask you to talk about that for a moment. Sure. Um, yeah, span of control is something that often comes up uh, there is no magic number around span of control, which is how many people should you have reporting to you. Um, there are some, uh, even though it's often said there, there's, you, know, you should have four to seven people or something. But really, there are some principles and guidelines that people should think about. So there are kind of two extremes. You don't want to have 
you know, 30 direct reports reporting to you. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you can't possibly give good managerial oversight to 30 people. You know, as a manager, you, as I said, you have your own individual contributor work, but you've also got managerial work, which is setting context, assigning tasks, doing assessments, coaching, and all that. So you can't possibly do that with too many people. So at the upper end, the problem, the issue around span of control is how many people can I manage effectively and give them good managerial oversight in, in, in addition to doing the, um, the technical or individual contributor work that I'm accountable for. At the lower end, we've got a different issue, which is efficiency. So I could have one direct report, but the, the issue with that, there's nothing theoretically wrong with that, but the issue is that if we have 15 managers, each with one direct report, um, it would probably be much more efficient and effective in the organization to have three managers, each with five direct reports. From a cost perspective, number one, you don't have uh, too many managers. Number two, coordination among those managers, having three managers versus 15. So at the lower end, the issue is around efficiency, uh, productivity, and cost. At the upper end, it's how many people can I actually oversee. So questions for people to think about is, are, are things like, do my direct reports all do similar kind of work, in which case you can probably have a greater span of control? Or are they doing highly complex, different, disparate kind of work, in which case they're going to require more oversight, so a smaller span of control? How much individual contributor or technical work have I got in my own role? If that's a lar- larger amount, then I'm going to be able to manage fewer people. So those are the kinds of things you know, to think about. And I think you know, the notion of four to seven generally kind of works, but really it should be tailored depending on your particular circumstances. Well, and would that also tell me if I have too many direct reports that I need to look at my structure again? Like maybe I'm not, maybe I need another level in there or, um, you know, that whole idea of the gap. Would that be an indicator to me? It is, and actually, it's a really important point. So, if you if you've got too many direct reports, the answer may not be inserting another level in the organization, which is often what happens because that's going to cause compression. What may actually have to happen is we actually we need we need two leases. We need it right. to split it laterally split it. because right. there's too much. This is a bigger role now. But but the solution often is I'll, I'll insert a level in the organization between me and and my staff and have some managers there. Well, it solves the direct report problem, but it introduces the comp- compression problem where there's no real added value at that level except for administrative purposes for direct reports. So so this lateral split as opposed to vertical split is really a critical consideration. That's great. Thank you so much, Morley. And we have time now for you to summarize for us. So what are the key takeaways for us? What are the things we need to remember as leaders when we start to, you know, um, unlock the power of organizational design and behavior? So again, the first thing is this notion of the, the three buckets, environment, strategy, and organization, and that the leader's role is, is both around crafting strategy, but also executing the strategy. And executing strategy means you need to the organization that enables you to do that. So you're, one of your roles or tasks as a leader is actually designing a structure, designing the organizational system, or refining the organizational system that you've inherited to ensure that it enables you to execute on the strategy. Uh, this critical distinction 
between individuals and the system. So, so obviously focus on the talent and make sure that you've got the right people in the right roles and operating at the right level of capability. But the starting point is designing the organizational system properly. So what's the lateral structure? How should that be structured functionally, geographically, by market product or whatever? And vertically, how many levels do I actually need here? What's the added value at each level? What are the accountabilities at those various levels? And then cross-functionally, what are the uh, accountabilities and decision rights. Um, so focusing on the system as well as the individuals in the system is really a, a critical thing to, to look at. Um, so avoiding gaps in compression and so on. Um, making sure that your managers understand that their job is not only to do the technical work that is in their role, but also to provide managerial oversight and, and to set the context and, and, uh, and establish these relationships. It's the manager who declares what these cross-functional relationships are deeper down in the organization. So uh, it's not your staff who determine, am I a be providing best advice or am I, am I monitoring or providing service? It's the managers who determine what kind of cross-functional relationships are going on between the groups. So the, one of the leader's jobs is, is actually defining what those cross-functional relationships are between staff deeper in the organization. And um, another thing I would say, which we haven't hit on too much, but I, we talked a lot about the structure, but the other thing is how people work effectively in the structure. So once you're clear around what you're accountable for and where your decision authorities are, then people have the freedom. It's what I call freedom in the framework. The framework is around accountabilities and structure and decision rights. And then the freedom is that you go off and generate the network of commitments and promises necessary to execute on those accountabilities. And organizations are all about people making commitments and promises to each other, both internally as well as between themselves and their customers and clients and other stakeholders within what they're accountable for. So the freedom is you go off and you execute on those accountabilities. Nobody tells you how to do that you're, you're uh, clear around what, in effect, uh, the, the sandbox is that you're authorized to operate in, and then you figure out how to execute within that. And the way you do that is by making commitments and promises, and making commitments and promises and keeping those commitments and promises or renegotiating them well is really critical. Well, and that's where your concept of that whole mini service agreement, if you're one of, if you're, you know, leading an org, a team that's actually providing an internal service to the organization, like all of that is so important. It is. It is. Well, Morley, we're coming towards the end of the show. So first of all, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your insight and experience with organizational behavior and design and how as leaders we can use these principles to unlock the potential of our organizations and teams. And of course, I wish you all the best with your PhD and unearthing the secrets behind leadership. And I can't wait to hear all about it. Oh, thanks, Lisa. <laughs> So if you have any questions regarding today's topic, please feel free to contact our guest today, Morley Katz, at Management Matters, and you can reach Morley through his website at managementmatters.ca. That's managementmatters.ca. You can also download this episode from um, my host page on voiceamerica.com or from iTunes, or you can visit my website at lisachicklesconsulting.com. Next week will actually be um, my first season finale. So I'll be summarizing what we've chatted about over the past few months and some new ideas that we just ran out of time to chat about um, and also share with you how you can reach me while my show is in hiatus. So I want to thank you uh, for listening and being with us today. I hope you found today's topic helpful and something that you can put into everyday practice. 
Again, you can reach me at chatwithchickles at rogers.com. That's C-H-I-C-U-L-E-S, chatwithchickles at rogers.com. Like me on Facebook, connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me on Twitter, and of course, check out my website at lisachicklesconsulting.com. I'm your host today, Lisa Chickles, and you're part of Chat with Chickles, what they couldn't teach you in business school because you have to live it to get it, and we'll chat next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for Chat with Chickles. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time for another edition with brand expert Lisa Chickles on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again on the next show.